This is how my grandmother won World War II. I'm Enid Tihani Weiss Zentilis, Episode 5, Olga and the Truth About America. That game wasn't won by the man who made that touchdown. It was won by a team, and every man on the team had a share in winning it. We're playing another kind of a game now, only this one isn't for fun. It's for keeps. And this game won't be won by any single player either. It'll be won by a team. A team called the United Nations. The ball will be carried by the men in the backfield. The tough little guy from China, Big Joe Russia, John Britton, and a guy called Yank, the four greatest backs in the world. So let's take a look at the men who carry the ball with us. Who are they? How do they live? What makes them tick? Let's start with the one that's toughest to understand, the one we know just enough about to confuse us, John Britton. That was a clip from a training film made by the U.S. Department of Defense in 1942 called Know Your Ally, Britain. The questionable ways in which China and Russia and Britain are described put into sharp focus just how odd the alliance actually was. I also want to point out that Russia is only on our metaphorical football team here in 1942 because after allying with Nazi Germany, Russia was attacked and double-crossed by Hitler and only then decided to join our side in June of 41. In episode two, we discovered that the intelligence my grandmother relayed to the British legation in 1940 concerned evidence that Hitler intended to betray Stalin and break their pact, known as the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. This pact was a non-aggression agreement between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, basically agreeing to divide up the world between the two of them. Needless to say, this was a blow to the Allies and the rest of the world. So the rhetoric you now hear about Russia being on our side in World War II doesn't exactly paint a clear picture of the facts. But why I chose this archival clip is because in this episode, we explore the relationship between the U.S. and Great Britain during World War II, most especially as it relates to my great-aunt Olga, my grandmother's sister, and covert resistance inside fascist Hungary. So far, I've spoken with my grandmother's daughter, my mom, also known as Catherine or Katie, Andras, my great-uncle Zoltan's son, and there's a third sibling that we have yet to talk about, Olga, Isabel and Zoltan's little sister. Olga's the one who escapes war in Hungary and flees to the U.S. before World War II starts. I never thought speaking to Olga's sons would yield any information about Zoltan and Isabel spying for the Allies, since she left Hungary just before my grandmother describes her experience of spying for the British. Olga leaves just before this. As I was researching, another present-day tragedy struck my extended family. Tim Miller, Olga's youngest son, passed away suddenly from a stroke. I had just been getting to know Tim and his children when he passed away. He was such a mensch, an open, warm, funny, loving soul, so the loss was terrible. I was in the hospital waiting room with the rest of Tim's family, holding hands and hoping for a miracle. 
And it was in that waiting room that I met Tim's brother, Peter, Olga's oldest son. I hadn't recalled ever meeting him. And while we were conversing about this series, Peter casually mentioned to me something I had never heard before. What I was told was that both Zoltan and their father worked in the communications department, whatever it was called, in Hungary, and that Zoltan came to think that the Hungarians would eventually team up with the Nazis. He then went to the British and offered to spy for them in exchange for a visa for Olga to come to the States. How had Olga managed to flee in 1938? Why had only Olga been able to leave? I never thought to ask these questions. This new information possibly dates when Zoltan and Isabel began passing information to the British, sometime in 1938, or potentially a year before. The British Special Operations Executive in charge of covert warfare was only created in July of 1940. This has to mean that Zoltan and Isabel's contact would have been first with MI6. MI6, or the Secret Intelligence Service, is roughly an equivalent to the CIA in the United States. I shared with you when you told me that first that I'd never heard that version of the story. Sort of an odd story to come up with if it wasn't true. It seems entirely possible it was very hard to get out of Hungary and no one was taking Jews and in any country. I needed to know the history of immigration laws in the U.S. and the nature of U.S. involvement in World War II before U.S. involvement was actually official. My name is Rebecca Belding, and I'm a historian at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. I'm wondering what you could, if you could describe for me the state of U.S. immigration policy at that time. Crucially, the U.S., and, and I think in a way that's surprising to most people, the U.S. doesn't pass any new laws in the 1930s that either let more Jews in or keep Jews out. Um, they don't need to restrict Jewish immigration any further than they already have um, because they're working off of the 1924 Johnson-Reed Immigration Act. Um, that act set up the second set of quotas under, in U.S. history passed overwhelmingly, uh, signed by President Calvin Coolidge. And it sets up quotas based on your country of birth. Um, it is based in eugenic racist science, uh, which was popular at the time. You know, leading scientists believed in eugenics, the idea of your country of birth determining the type of person that you're going to become. So there were countries that produced good immigrants and countries that produced bad immigrants. And the U.S. was trying to keep out the criminals, the, the people carrying hereditary diseases, which they believed came from Southern and Eastern Europe, Asia, and Africa. Um, so there are large numbers of quota slots available for people born in Great Britain, um, people born in Germany, and far fewer for people born in Southern and Eastern Europe. Uh, the entirety of the continent of Africa had 1,100 quota slots available per year, and there are massive swaths of Asia from which you cannot immigrate at all unless you are a child of a white missionary. Um, the Asiatic barred zones uh, continued to keep out people from India, from China, from Japan, from South and East Asia. These acts are in place with few changes until 1965. 1965? Um, 1965. So there are some changes that open up the Asiatic Barred Zone. You know, China is our ally during the war, and so it becomes 
politically untenable to keep out all Chinese. But if you were born in China or Japan and happened to make it to the U.S., uh, if you were born, say, and came at the turn of the century, you legally could not naturalize and become an American citizen until 1952. Getting a, a sidetrack for a second, um, this has a huge role in Japanese-American imprisonment during World War II. This U.S. government-produced clip in 1943 tried to justify its actions imprisoning Japanese-Americans. When the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, our west coast became a potential combat zone. Living in that zone were more than 100,000 persons of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of them American citizens, one-third aliens. We knew that some among them were potentially dangerous. Most were loyal. But no one knew what would happen among this concentrated population if Japanese forces should try to invade our shores. Military authorities therefore determined that all of them, citizens and aliens alike, would have to move. So you have a third of the people who are imprisoned are so-called enemy aliens. These are not recent arrivals. These are people who have been here for 30 and 40 and 50 years and have American-born children who are American citizens because of birthright citizenship, but who cannot legally naturalize and become citizens themselves because they had been born in Japan. So to summarize, our immigration system is racist. It is based in now-debunked science. We don't pass any new laws to keep out Jews. The quota law is targeted at areas where Jews lived, and it's, so it's aimed at Jews, but it is not specifically designed for Jews. Hungary, for example, had a quota number of 869. So 869 people born in Hungary could immigrate to the United States any year. It's not 869 Jews, it is 869 Hungarians. So Hungarian Total. Catholics and Hungarian Jews, yes. But areas where there are large Jewish and Slavic and Catholic populations got far fewer quota slots than areas where the so-called good immigrants, the white Protestants, were living. But there were three siblings. I'm curious why it was just Olga, why he wouldn't have said, you know, give us three visas. Well, she it. said, I may have this slightly wrong, I can't remember for certain just how this took place, but I, I believe what she told me was that he also offered Bella a chance to get out, but with a husband and two children, she decided not to. I don't mean that he was trying to get just her, but I think it would have been very hard for her husband to get out, you know, being in the army. And so I'm extrapolating here, but my guess was it would have had to have been just her, or perhaps her and Katie and Paul, probably not her, your grandfather. Or who knows, maybe, you know, he went in with his list of requests, and maybe what they offered was we can get one visa for one person. Right. Yeah, I just don't know. Yeah. Um, but she was the I, youngest. Well, I do know that yeah. she said Bella turned down the opportunity. But what I don't know is how broad the opportunity was. Later, after war had been officially declared, my grandmother recalls in her published memoir trying to get a visa for the whole family to come to the United States. She tells about dressing up the kids and taking a picture of all of them, trying to get a country to take them, and how it was too late. No one would. In fact, by that time, Zoltan had already been taken away to a forced labor camp. 
Going back to just her exit from Budapest, um, I'm wondering a few things. I Did you ever see or did she ever um, show you the visa that she obtained or talk about the trajectory or the path that she took to get here? You mentioned she took a train. No, that, yeah, that never came up. But so you know she took a train. I, I believe so, and it certainly sounded like it when she was talking at the end of her life. And you think that it, that was about 38, 1938, when she arrived in the U.S.? Yes. And I wonder if she ever indicated to you that she had to have false papers or fabricated passport or anything of that nature to travel with? No, we never talked about the logistics of it. How Olga arrived in the U.S. is so critical. Did she take a boat from England, for example? Her itinerary could tell us some critical things, but Olga did what she believed she had to do and buried those facts from her family. I spent a long time on the Ellis Island site and a digital database of ship manifests arriving there through the ages. A passenger search produced a record for Olga. She was recorded to have arrived in New York in 1939 at the age of 21 on a ship called the SS Manhattan, July of 1939 to be precise, not 1938, exponentially harder to get out of Europe as a Jew on that date. One month later, World War II would be declared. Recall now the famous shipload of 900 Jews turned away in Cuba in September of 1939 for not having the correct paperwork and sent back to Europe to their deaths. Dr. Rebecca Urbelding again. Okay, so the Manhattan is, is a massive ship. Um, based on my research, it carried more Jewish immigrants to the United States than any other passenger ship, um, between, at least between 1939 and 1941, um, in part because it, it was so big, it stopped in so many places, and a lot of other big passenger ships like the Queen Mary are pulled from passenger sailings after the outbreak of war. The Manhattan and the Queen Mary and a number of these ships are very fast. And so they're making it, you know, within eight or 10 days, they're already in the United States. Now, one thing that you mentioned, Ellis Island, this ship would not have landed at Ellis Island. Ellis Island in 1924 really closes down as the place that you would get off the boat. Um, but most of these ships actually land in Hoboken or docks on the Hudson River. The SS Manhattan list told me a lot. The SS Manhattan was a U.S. luxury liner famous for transporting the U.S. Olympic team to Berlin in 1936 and for smuggling out 88 unaccompanied Jewish children as part of what would later become known as the Kinder Transport. On the manifest itself, Olga does not have a quota immigration visa, as many people on the list had. She has a passport visa and is therefore not bound to the strict quota limits. So most people, when you talk about quotas, see a quota of something that you have to hit. In terms of U.S. immigration, the quota is the maximum. So it was, so, never, it was never even as good as the quota spells out, and what the quota spells out was abhorrent. I mean, 800-something for Hungary is absurd. Yes, (laughs) that's that's right. So 
869 is the maximum. Now, what's interesting in terms of Hungary is the U.S. actually lets in more than that, not by very much. Um, it ranges to about a thousand people in 1939, 1940, 1941. But it does go over the quota, and I haven't been able to reconcile that yet. 1938, 962 quota immigrants were admitted to the United States. 1939, Dr. Erbelding spoke of an unaccounted overage for Hungarians admitted to the U.S. between 1938 and 1940. The quota limit for those years officially hits the maximum allowance, but the recorded number of Hungarians entering the country exceeds the quota limit. I asked Dr. Erbelding to speak to the likelihood of my family's arrangement of offering to spy for the British in exchange for a U.S. visa. The tricky thing for me is I it would make much more sense for me if she got a visa to Britain. But what leverage would the British have to get her a visa to the U.S.? At that that's, time, or that's just where, generally speaking? Kind of generally speaking, but, but specifically at that time. You know, the war hasn't broken out yet. The British and the U.S. are not allies uh, officially. So this is part yeah. of the trouble with being a historian, is like we yeah. are taught to rely on the paper documentation, knowing that people lie on paper documentation all the right. time. Right. And so what we then are trained to do is say, does this raise any questions for me? Does looking at this paperwork, does, is there something that just doesn't seem quite right, that doesn't quite make sense to me? And with your great aunt's paperwork, it, it pretty much makes sense to me. It's not uncommon that this sort of thing would happen, that she would get come on a passport visa, get stuck. That happened to many people. That doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that there is probably, at least from the American angle, no documentation that would that would indicate in any way that this had happened. Of course, okay. there wouldn't be. Yeah. They would scrub that sort of thing. What I came across was that in all the spy intake forms, what they ask and exchange, we found more instances of this than not, was a visa to the U.S. Interesting. And then there were exchanges between British military intelligence officers saying that if we can secure a U.S. visa for so-and-so, they said they would be willing to do the mission and fill in the blank. Okay. So it came up in a variety of contexts. So, I mean, if this is right, that could explain why there were more quota immigrants admitted than the quota. Um, oh, that's interesting. I didn't think about but that. But the other thing is if they're tr if he's trading a visa for his sister in exchange for him performing acts of spying, I wonder why it was just a tourist visa, like a six-month tourist visa. Maybe that's all that they could secure for her. I'm curious because when you described the quota immigration visa and you said it's much more difficult to get. It is much more difficult to There's get. much more scrutiny. Yes. So and if much the point is just getting the hell out, I know from the time I spent with her, um, my great aunt, and from talking to her sons that she knew on that train that she, she wasn't coming back. That she was never coming back. If it wasn't part of a deal, the hardest part 
for your great aunt about getting a visa is convincing. Convincing them that she'd be coming back? That she would be coming back because she has to prove that she's leaving enough behind yeah. to show that she's going to come back. And so her brother and her sister and her father are her collateral. And if she knew that she wasn't coming back, then she knew that at the time. It's heartbreaking. Cause it's absolutely heartbreaking to think about. I remember that Olga loved to travel the world. She took short trips virtually everywhere. Her home was filled with artwork from every imaginable culture. But she never once returned to Hungary. I wonder if we think back to uh, if she did in fact get a visa based on some kind of deal made with the British, if if some of the terms or part of the terms with that would be not discussing it, essentially, not discussing those terms. In the 50s, um, after Zoltan got out of Hungary, you know, with, with the family during the time of the revolution. She talked about Zoltan and his role in the Hungarian government then, mm-hmm. but we weren't supposed to talk much about it because that was his role within the Hungarian government somehow was significant. I'm not quite sure how her talking about it in Kalamazoo could possibly affect anything, but at the time it seemed to make sense. You detected and you remember some kind of trepidation in discussing Zoltan's role or discussing him in Hungary at that time. Yeah, but it, but it didn't have to do with the Nazis. It had to do with the communists. Right. This makes sense to me. Saba Kawami, the philatelist who fled Hungary on foot in 1956 with his family, shared with me what life was like post-World War II in Hungary under communist secret police. Any association with the West was enough to put you on a list of suspects in the era. Zoltan and my grandmother had a big association with the West, potentially with British MI6. Olga then had good cause to tell her boys to keep quiet about Zoltan and Bella, even halfway across the world in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where she had settled and gotten a job as a chemist. I spent a good amount of time with my great-aunt Olga. She loathed Hungary, what it had done to her family, her whole way of life. She remained very close with her siblings, though, especially my grandmother. Their affection and loyalty to one another was undeniable, but I always felt they were also such different people. My grandmother loved Hungary, published a Hungarian cookbook in France, spoke Hungarian whenever she could. For my grandmother, she would refuse to relinquish her claim on a country she called home. Even if that country continued to deny her, she never let it go, never stopped fighting for it and for the people she loved there. My countrymen and my friends, my single duty is to speak to the whole of America. I had hoped against hope that some miracle would prevent a devastating war in Europe and bring to an end the invasion of Poland by Germany. For 
From President Roosevelt speaking to the nation in 1939, to American neo-Nazis spreading their hate in a public demonstration in Charlottesville in 2017, I realize that as I search for the truth about my grandmother, I'm also searching for the truth about America. Raoul Wallenberg, who saved thousands of Hungarian Jews, along with my mother, grandmother, and uncle, was funded by the U.S by an organization called the War Refugee Board. This board was, in the words of Dr. Erbelding, the only time in American history that the U.S. government founded a non-military agency to save the lives of civilians being murdered by a wartime enemy. I grew up knowing that my country had played a critical part in my being here at all because they had commissioned Wallenberg. America largely turned its back on Jews being killed abroad at this time, but not entirely, or I wouldn't be talking to you now. And my relative, Marika Tihani, who survived three concentration camps, described being carried out of the last camp by an American soldier. I can now add to my American narrative the fact that U.S. visas were offered to help leverage a resistance movement of covert fighters inside fascist Hungary. Yes, this is a theory on my part, but one that I personally believe to be true. I believe this is how Olga got out of Hungary and how my grandmother and her brother officially started passing secrets to the Allies. I traveled a lot with my grandmother. We went to Budapest together. We drove around Israel in the mid-1990s in a rental car, staying in youth hostels along the way. We searched for markers of lost souls, floated on the Dead Sea, and wept at the Wailing Wall. At that time, you could freely walk into Palestine and back, but it was Budapest that felt so heavy to me, not Israel. I experienced it with extreme trepidation, even when my grandmother recalled all of its best attributes. On that one and only trip I made to Hungary, I recall meeting gypsy musicians in the street in an endless twilight. I remember being a vegetarian and desperately searching for fresh fruits and vegetables that were neither deep fried nor goulashed. One day, when we were staying with Julia, the daughter of my grandmother's nanny who had hid my mom and uncle during the war, I recalled dancing a traditional Hungarian shardash with an extremely elderly man in her tiny but well-adorned apartment. The dance starts slowly and speeds up bit by bit. I remembered looking down at my Doc Martens clumsily trying to keep up with an 80-year-old in a three-piece suit. And I remember my grandmother laughing and clapping along to the music and marveling at the sight of me in Budapest doing these things. Subscribe on patreon.com backslash how my grandmother won World War II to access additional top secret materials and to continue this conversation. If you like what you've heard here, please share, like, subscribe, and most importantly, fight fascism everywhere. This series was produced by myself and Vicki Virgolina. Music by Tim Boland and Sam Retzer. Story consultants were Jennifer Brooks and Marcella Steingart. Thank you to Peter Miller and family, 
Linda Miller and family, Dr. Rebecca Erbelding, and the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. This series was made with support from the NYU Tisch Dean's Grants and IFP Audio Hub.